Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, now is your last chance to get coffee here if you want to grab some. And as you do, let me encourage you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, we, uh, you all probably know well that we have a high value for equipping children here. And so some of you who are like, oh, my kids are grown or I don't have kids uh, or whatever, please don't dismiss. While we are focusing right now on the teaching of the Word of God and equipping children in this message, this message is not designed exclusively for that. Uh, and as always, if you want to access the slides, uh, we do have some practical stuff in these slides. So if you want to access them, you can scan that QR code. It'll take you to the church website. Um, I do that for a couple of reasons. One, um, I can email them out ahead of time, but honest truth is usually Sunday morning I'm making some tweaks to the slides. Um, and the second thing is it's good to our website to have lots of people go on all at the same time. Um, so if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we will begin in verse 1. I'm going to begin reading, but first I'm going to pray for God's blessing. God, be with us in this time. Anoint the words that I speak that they would be in accordance with your will. Um, illuminate the word of God to us, be with us in this time, and receive glory. Uh, more than that, may we be obedient to you. God, I'm recognizing that there are things we are doing that are like planting seeds in the ground and watering them. It is basic, it is simple, it is not usually fancy, and yet it is these things that bring about the harvest. Lord, what I want for us, for our future generations, is faithful people of God who obey you generation after generation, who follow Christ faithfully until you return. I want children of the covenant. I want obedience to you. And I want you to say well done when we are in your presence. So be with us and grant us those things in Christ's name. Amen. So now in verse one, it says, now this is the commandment. Uh, actually, let me pause. I've already realized I need to give some introduction to what's happening in the book of Deuteronomy. Because we're just going to do one sermon here on Deuteronomy. Maybe, Lord willing, we'll come back. Deuteronomy means second law. And it doesn't mean second law in the sense of, like, here is an additional law. It is Moses, as he is saying farewell to the people of God soon before his death, he is giving them a second set of instructions that are really just a reiteration of the first ones. Uh, there's not anything particularly new in here. Uh, he is simply giving four sermons that are being illustrated and clarified related to God's law. And he's saying, children of Israel, here's what it means to obey God. Do this so that things go well. This is going to be key. Deuteronomy is a great study. Another little side note, people forget this, but the founding fathers of our nation cited Deuteronomy more than any other book. Uh, they were studying Blackstone and John Locke and many others. Deuteronomy they came back to. The basis of Western law the basis of morality for any real faithful Christian culture is going to be God's law. And here it is to some degree simplified and put in practical terms here in Deuteronomy. We should not neglect the Old Testament, especially as it relates to Deuteronomy. So that said, verse one of chapter six, this is now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach to you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. 
Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Really quick, what he's getting at is this concept of commandment. Notice he uses the word commandment singular, but then he encompasses the rules and the statutes in order to fear God. And the idea that he gives here is then that this will not just be you, but your son and your son's son. The implication is that if you do this right, the people of God will continue to follow God faithfully from generation to generation. Cool. He also says, hear and do them. And the response here is that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. Now, I think you have heard me mention we see the message of the prosperity gospel as significant error. And yet there is an equally bad error. The prosperity gospel says, hey, get whatever you want from God, live rich, and that's what life is about. The opposite error to that is that like, well, if you're a Christian, you'll always suffer. Somewhere in between is we have this idea that God has created the world a certain way. It is beautiful and it is wonderful. It is marred by sin. And yet God has given us commandments that when we obey them, it goes well. That we're not creating more hassle. Uh, There have been many times in pastoral counseling where I'm sitting in front of someone and they're like, well, I did this and then I did this and then this is happening and this is happening. Why is God allowing this to happen? I'm like, stop sinning. I mean, seriously, you are making it worse. And now there's another sense in which I would say many times we're living faithfully and we suffer because our enemy hates it. But I will tell you, there is enough suffering in this world. Don't make it worse with more suffering. And so God is saying that it may go well with you. One, it's how the world was designed to work. Two, when we obey God, we're not making him mad. Anyway, continuing on. I will just keep this little note here. The statutes and rules are not merely how to fear God rightly. The language here seems to indicate that they are the things that will keep you fearing God. And Have you noticed that there are things that God has commanded us do that when we do them, our love for him seems to increase. Things like the command to gather with the saints. Things like the command to pray, the command to fellowship, the command to meditate on his word. There are things that when we do them, not only is it itself obedience, but increases the obedience long term. Cool? Awesome. You guys are with me on this. That was mostly introduction. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, you all have heard this phrase, hear, O Israel, before. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Anybody know what this is called? The Shema. Okay, here's an interesting thing. Shema essentially means hear. So what we say here, this hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is arguably the foundational catechism of Judaism. It is pretty important. As we well know, it affirms the fact that God is exclusively God. 
that he is the one who is in charge. He is called Lord here. And that he is our God. Hear, O Israel, Lord your God. I mean, he's your God. He's one. You're to love him like this. I will point out that this is to the exclusion of all of the secondary gods, and I think it's kind of a cool thing. You might recall that when God showed himself in Exodus and he he is redeeming the people of God, he takes that as an opportunity to systematically smack in the face all of the gods of Pharaoh in Egypt. The plagues all seem to be related to one of the Egyptian gods, and all of them, and I will tell you, probably were real spiritual beings. We like to think, oh, they just did some tricks and whatever, and you know, they, you know, they made their sticks look like serpents too. Let's just be real honest. People are not stupid. And just because something happened millennia ago doesn't mean that they were somehow ignorant of the way the world works naturally. No, there are real demons, and they do real stuff, and there's a reason why people worship false gods. And yet our one true God comes along, and he says, yep, Moses' staff that turns into a serpent is going to eat all of their serpents. And we're going to turn that water. You think you've got control over the water? No, no, no. Our God's going to turn the Nile and everything in your land to blood, and you will be in trouble. And we see again and again and again where God says, every one of those gods can't do what I do. We, by the way, see the same thing when the children of Israel are taken into captivity in Babylon. What does Nebuchadnezzar end up saying? He's like, the God of Daniel is greater than all the gods. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say, well, you know, it was all a big joke and none of these gods are real. What he says is, the God of Daniel beat our gods. His is the one true God. And so here, after Israel has been rescued, the message to the people of Israel, hear, O Israel, The Lord your God, he's one. He's your God, he's our God, and he is one. He is the God and he is the Lord. Exclusivity and wonder. Praise the Lord. And then he commands, of course, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The implication here is that the whole of your being is to love God. We know that when Jesus is questioned on what the greatest commandment is, he cites this very passage. In Mark 12, 30 and 31, he actually says, no, 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 you are to love the Lord your God. Notice he begins with, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The first and greatest commandment does not merely begin with how you're supposed to think and feel about God. It begins by who God is. It's a declaration, and that declaration of who he is is as much a command as the rest of it. Cool. All right, continuing on. It says, in these words, okay, can I just say for a minute then, I have to say this. If I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, this means that I cannot segment off the things of God into a weekly meeting alone. The idea is that this permeates the whole of my being. Okay? I know what, by the way, this is stuff that is basic to you all. I, I will understand. Like, these are things that you already know. Sometimes I preach a sermon because I want to fix something that's wrong. Sometimes it's to reiterate something that you already know and admonish you on to it. And in this case, it is that, plus hopefully some practical things that will be of value. Continuing on, it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The implication is that like it should be in you, not just on the outside of you. Then he says this, You shall teach them diligently to your children. There is a command then that I am to dis- disciple my children in the things of God. 
this whole thing where people say, well, I'm going to just let my kids decide what they're going to believe. I don't want to force religion on them. No, what you're forcing on them is the gods of secularism when you do that. When you do that, what you're essentially saying is whatever Disney tells you is God, whatever the public schoolmaster says is God, they will make God. And in the absence of the one true God, they will follow after the false gods of the culture. And let me tell you, we have them. <clears throat> More on that later. And I mean it. All right. It says, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You get the implication here that I am having conversations about the things of God and everything I'm doing. When I sit down to a meal with my family, I'm communicating about the things of God. When I wake up in the morning, when I go to bed, the idea is that the conversations of God are on my lips and that my children are hearing it and seeing it. Very practical ways in which we do this. When I'm splashing in the pool and we're having fun on a warm day, I say, kids, we're blessed, aren't we? Like, God allowed us to have this pool, and we're enjoying it on a hot day. God's good, isn't it? And the other day, I, I put shingles on the roof of my chicken coop, and I'm really happy with it. And I've never done that. I had to figure it out. And I'm sitting in the pool, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, God's blessed us. Like, I get to look at the things. These are arguably small things. We're blessed, or we're sitting around the fire pit, and I'm like, we're enjoying good times, and we have peace in our time and peace in our land. We're blessed. Kids at dinner, like God gave us a good meal. I'm like, kids, your mother is wonderful. She loves you. Like, we're blessed, right? The blessings of the Lord should be something that I point out on a regular basis. Continuing on. Then he says this. So these things, these commands that God has given us, I'm supposed to teach them to my kids. So that would mean catechesis and teaching the word of God and all these things. I'm teaching them. But then also I'm to talk of them. I'm in conversation in the daily life with them. So there's a sense in which I'm teaching academically. There's another sense in which I'm teaching conversationally and in a modeling. And then it says, I'm to bind them as a sign on my hand that then they shall be frontlets between my eyes. Anybody know what this might be a reference to? Okay, yeah, so interesting thing, there are these things called phylacteries that many Orthodox Jews will actually put the actual word of God into them, and they've got like a whole ritual where they wrap them around their arms, on their hands, and on their foreheads, taking this very literally. Now, I would say that even that itself is not a bad thing, but I don't think it's what God is getting at. I will say there are some things like that that it's a good idea to do literally because it teaches something figurative as like a sign. Um, and I think that's fine. Praise the Lord for it. Uh, but the idea here is the things that I'm doing with my hands, I should be doing as to the Lord so that he gets glory. What I do in my work should say something about how I love God. Whatever my hand finds to do, I should do it with all thy might. Do it as for the Lord, as to the Lord. And the same thing, the countenance on my face, the things I think about, what I do, like it should be written on me that I'm God's kid. It is no accident, it is no small thing that in Revelation, when it refers to the beast wanting to put his number on the people that were serving him, he wanted it on their hand or on their forehead. The implication is, am I obeying God in my mind and in my hands, or am I obeying God's enemy in those things? 
I will say that who and how we serve says whose we are. This is why I, I know that this is a pet topic for me. It's a hobby horse. But this is why we defy tyranny. Because when the gods of this age, when the politicians and the presidents of our age try to tell us that they have authority over us in the things that only God has authority, if I obey Joe Biden or Anthony Fauci or Gretchen Whitmer or whoever it might be to stay home instead of obeying God to fulfill Hebrews 10 to go to church, I might as well write 603 score and six on my hands and on my mind because what I'm saying is that Anthony Fauci is my king, not Jesus. I get to preach this after the fact because, you know, here we are. All right? But I think much more, the other things that our culture wants us to affirm, and let me just tell you, they want it from our lips. The early Christians were not persecuted for something, for regular things. They were persecuted for the fact that when it came time to drop a pinch of incense and to say Caesar was Lord, just lip service. That's all he wanted. They wouldn't do it by God's grace. And the idea was, no, 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 Jesus is my king, and the hands that I use and the minds that I use, it should say something. Brothers and sisters, our children see this. They see every little bit of it. They see when I give lip service to something in order to keep business. They see when I have lip service to something because it's comfortable. Um, we're boycotting Target, brothers and sisters, because they hate God. And they want to teach something wicked to our children. I didn't like Bud Light anyway, but I'm boycotting them as well. Because, brothers and sisters, like I want even the things that I buy with my hands to say something about whose kid I am. And when my kids ask me, Dad, why are we doing this? Why don't we go to Target anymore? I'm like, because Jesus is our Redeemer. And he saved us. And these people are trying to teach something that is anti-Christ and we're not going to be a part of it. Continuing on. It says, you shall write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. Now, we could say that this maybe is not meant to be literal in the same way that like frontlets on your eyes. But you know what? The people of Israel took it literally. And I'd say there's nothing quite wrong with this. Hanging scripture in your walls, like decorating in your home. I, regardless, I want somebody that comes into my house to know that, the, that this house follows Jesus. And, and maybe that's literally with verses on the wall, but it better be with the way that we do things. I'm hoping that when we have people over, I try to make sure that I'm still doing something. We're praying around the dinner table. We might even do family worship with the guest in our house because we want people there to know that this house follows Jesus. Can you imagine what this would say to children? Like, if your kids watch this, can they see you as anything but a faithful, committed Christian? I mean, novice believers don't do this stuff. The faithful ones do. Do you think your kids maybe take it seriously when they see this? I hope so. Um, by means of evaluation, and I just want you to just think on these things, take time after, but maybe asking these questions, do my children know that God and obedience to him is central to our family? Like, do my kids know that? Like, you, can you ask your kid, like, think about, like, if, my, if somebody asked my kid, how important is it that you obey God? Would they say, oh yeah, that's important in our home? 
Do, do my children know God's word fluently? Am I teaching them catechism? Am I teaching them verse memorization? Could they defend their faith? And I recognize some of this is going to take time. Like, I don't expect my seven-year-old to be able to give an articulate answer for why God exists and why Jesus rose from the dead. But I do expect her to be able to say the basics of Jesus' death and resurrection. Cool? Do my coworkers and friends know that God is central to my life? Do the guests in my home know that we serve God there? Could someone come into my home, have a nice time, and leave, and not know that I'm Christ's follower? If so, that there's a problem. This is basic, but hopefully you're all with me. So verse 10, it says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that, did, that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God that you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Well, that's some serious language. Notice the language, though, that God brought you out of slavery. You were in possibly the worst experience you could be in. Now the tables have turned. You are, you are enjoying the fruit of vineyards that you did not plant. You are enjoying, you didn't have to dig for that cistern. You're sitting in a house that not only did you not build the house, but it's filled with stuff that you didn't even put there. Because God has run off the heathens that were there before and taken all of that plunder and given it to you. And when you're sitting there and you're living in absolute comfort, God says, watch out that you don't forget that it was God that gave you all of this. And he knows that the danger is that you will slip into following after the gods of the people around you. Can I just say that we are kind of seeing this? Um, I came across this picture. Sadly, this is not the only thing like this. Uh, where some apostate church put a gay pride flag on a pole and strapped it to a cross as some kind of a message of inclusivity. Would we say that that, was a, that, that church probably was built by faithful people maybe a hundred years ago? And those faithful people labored to load, load stone upon stone and to declare something about who owned that building. And their children or their children or their children, however many after them, have apostated it and hoisted the flag of pride and abomination on that building. Can we say that that very thing is an example of how easy it is to not pass on the truth of God from one generation to the next and lead to a group of people in complete abomination. I don't want that for my children. Thanks for the thumbs up, buddy. <laughs> All right. Uh, so a couple of things. Uh, uh, we're just going to hit some stats here. You guys know I like to do this every now and then. So when we look at what makes for a biblical worldview, when we say biblical worldview, we don't mean a monolithic unilateral agreement on every doctrinal statement, right? But this is the idea of where God has spoken in things related to sexual ethics, 
related to basics of morality, related to um, man's responsibility, uh, related to the gospel, what we would call the essentials and the basics from a moral perspective and a gospel perspective. We're talking about a biblical worldview. Of the boomer generation, our understanding is about 10% of them held to a biblical worldview. Now, we would say that those outside of that had to some Christianized worldview, right? You would have some that didn't have a full biblical worldview, but they were like, hmm, you know, I think rape is wrong. Pretty sure that's wrong. And I probably shouldn't do too much drugs, right? Like there was an understanding even among those. Um, and so with this, though, we see that the following generation, the Gen X generation, which I think I fall into, I miss it by like a year, um, roughly 7% have a biblical worldview. Uh, with the millennials, it goes down only a point, I'm actually surprised at that, to 6%, and Gen Z is at 4%. Um, I think this should scare us a little bit, that there is a radical decline from generation to generation on whether or not they have a biblical worldview. So I'd like to kind of think about what the source of this might be, other than simply not obeying Deuteronomy 6, one of them is we know that 37%, only 37% of pastors in the U.S. have a biblical worldview. Now think about that. That's pretty stinking low. That means that, I'm not good with math, <laughs> right? But what would that be? I mean, that's a little more than a third. That means roughly two-thirds, a little less than two-thirds. 63% do not have a biblical worldview. That's 63 of the people who are charged with God's sheep that are teaching error to the people under them. Um, I think this should not be surprising. I got some slightly encouraging news, though. Um, according to Barner Research, over half of Gen Z teens feel motivated to learn more about Jesus. Well, that's encouraging. Notably, among these... We, they separate them into committed Christians, nominal Christians, and then it goes to like completely unbelieving people, not Christians at all. But uh, of the, the committed Christian teens, 80% believe that Jesus is relevant to their life. And roughly the same number actually will say that like, hey, and my life is joyful because of Jesus. And so in a generation that is wrought with depression and gender dysphoria and whatever other things, the faithful Christians are happy. <laughs> Praise God. Here's the other thing. Uh, again, on this whole thing of half of Gen Z's feel motivated to learn more about Jesus. What is particularly intriguing to me is, of course, it's the committed Christians that are the most interested. But even among those who are non-believing, a little over 30% are saying, like, I'd actually like to learn about Jesus. That's a big deal in a culture that right now is actively opposed to the things of God. Continuing on, I, now, I know that stats get boring, so I won't take too much time on this. But if you can look at that green line on here, this is if, for, for, so think about for every group, who are they going to go to to seek truth about Jesus? Well, the committed Christians are very likely to go to all of these sources, but the committed ones see the Bible as their primary source. Praise God. That means the Protestants are winning. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, notice, though, the green line is the non-believers, right? These are the guys who are, have no interest in things of God, except, well, no, no belief in things of God, but they're interested to some degree. The highest one was family. That, that's who they're going to go to if they want to learn something about God. For all of the non-believers, they're going to go to family. This would imply, then, families, families, 
that we have something that we can do in retaining the faith from generation to generation. And, oh, bonus, it's exactly what God said to do in Deuteronomy 6. Cool? All right, so some encouragement. Verse 16, it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it might go well with you, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. How interesting that he's like, hey, you're going to go in the land, you're going to kick out everybody else, it's going to be great, don't trust God, or don't test God. And, he's, and he refers back to Massa, which is where the people of God complained. It's in Exodus 17, they complained, they wanted water, and they, they don't get it by petitioning God, they get it by whining and disobeying. And God says, don't test me like that. In certain cir- circumstances, God well, the testing resulted in people's death. Um, he's saying, don't test me. He's like, I'm blessing you. Don't test me. Just obey. Don't test me. Enjoy the good gifts. Trust in me. Teach your kids. Obey. It's a good life. Verse 6, or um, it's not verse 6, verse 20. This is when your son asks you in time to come. Now here, now Moses is looking forward. Like he's speaking now in time to come as when you've taken the land, when you're living this good life we've described, and he says, and when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? He's saying, we know this is going to happen. You are going to be living among a people that do not love God. You have taken over the land. You have all of this benefit. It's a good time. And your kids are going to be like, why are we obeying these laws? I don't understand. Like, none of Our neighbors don't do this. Our neighbors are, uh, are partying. They're, they're, they're worshiping Astaroth. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping Moloch or Dagon, whoever else that they ended up dealing with. And all of, and they're, they're, they're doing fine. Why are we doing this? And he says, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Remember that stuff we talked about, how God trumped all of the Egyptian gods? Here, this is a parent whose kids didn't see it happen. A parent whose kids weren't enslaved. And this parent is like, let me tell you what God did. The implication is partially that, like, they're not seeing all these signs and wonders. They're just they're living in the blessing that came after all this. And he's like, I saw these signs and wonders that our God did. It says, and he brought us from there that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all the st- these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commanded before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Notice what he's saying. He's like, we're doing this in order to keep this good life that we have and bring glory to the God who rescued us. So imagine putting this in our day. Kids and teens, when they say, why do we study the Bible? Why do we follow? Like our, our neighbors don't follow these rules. Like, mom and dad, why can't I get to do this? 
why do I, why do we sit around, like, we, this is weird, we have family worship, you're making us memorize catechisms, like, we say it in unison, doesn't that seem weird, mom and dad, this seems weird, why do we do this stuff, my neighbor doesn't do this, my friend from softball doesn't do this, my friend from soccer and his family doesn't do this, like, why do we do this, and you look at that kid and you say, listen, I got saved out of wretched sin. I was on a path to death and I was watching death happen all around me and God rescued me from my sin just like he rescued the children of Israel out of the slavery of Egypt. God rescued me out of the slavery of my sin and you have a better life because I love your mother and I love you and I'm working instead of stealing and I'm providing instead of running off and you have a mom and a dad and this household that is good and we fear God because this is what he told us to do and he rescued us and guess what? He is the God who conquered all of the gods of the Egyptians, all of the gods of Babylon, all the gods of the Medes and the Persians and all everything in between, the gods of the Norse the gods of Rome, the gods of Greece. He's beaten them all. He is our God. He's in us. He's in my heart. And kid, this is what we do. You're part of this covenant. You're in. The answer is always because of what God has done and who he is. So, praise God. A couple of practical things here. We'll finish up. First of all, uh, generation to generation learning is an important thing. You will hear me mention classical education a lot. Part of that's because I'm biased to it. I teach for a classical Christian school, and part of it's because it's worked for thousands of years. Um, I, I speak pretty clearly against uh, the public school system in part because they just do a terrible job. Um, I mean, they do. Like stats are clear. Like we are as as soon as we implemented. A, an education department at the national level, our testing scores internationally have plummeted. We're something like 30th in the world. That's ridiculous, right? Especially when we used to do much better. When some parents living on the prairie could teach kids to read before now the supposed pros can do it. Anyway, here's the other thing. Theology is the queen of the sciences. Historically, it was the basis of God's creation that God has created a world with order that gives us a basis for every other science, from math to the natural sciences to philosophy. Everything comes back to the fact of a basis there. So I will tell you, in classical education, we use a system we call it the trivium. Um, it is the three basics of learning. It is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Grammar is the basics of stuff. It's not just in language where you learn your subjects and your verbs. In math, it's 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's the basics. In theology, we do the same thing. What do we do for grammar? We teach catechism, and kids memorize verses. right? We move then on to logic. Logic is when you put together those basic building blocks. So my kids, they learned catechism pretty young, and there's been a few times where my kids have come to me and had some theological question, and they don't realize that they're asking the question that the catechism already asks. And all I do is just look at them and I return them and I ask them the catechism question and it makes the connection. This is the logic stage of learning. Rhetoric is the following stage when they, as they grow, they learn to put it into their own words and communicate to people outside the faith on it. I want to move kids through this so that they have a lifelong view of learning that is good. So some practical things here. Live faithfully in your home. Do family worship. I'm going to highly recommend Christian education. I recognize it's not an option for everybody, but let me just tell you, Christian education, especially in the home, it's really powerful. And man, our enemy is doing some wicked things in schools. Get in a good, faithful Christian co-op if you can. Um, we already mentioned home decor, decor. 
Tell your children why you serve this way and then get involved in church life. It's as simple as obey God's commands, teach God's word, answer, God's, answer kids' questions when they bring them up. Pretty simple. A um, couple of quick books I'm going to recommend. Uh, dads, read Family Shepherds. Um, you are a pastor of your home. I'm going to highly recommend read this book by Vodi Bakum. It gets really practical. You all already know we recommend New City Catechism. If all you do is teach your kids catechism, you're going to go far with that. Um, also, read Family Worship by Donald Whitney. I know a lot of dads that are like, I just don't feel like I know enough. I just don't. I don't feel like I'm equipped. Uh, dads, husbands that are like, I, my wife probably knows more than me. Uh, this book takes you about two hours total to read, and it's super practical, and you get done, you're like, oh, that's what family worship is? I can do that. Um, pretty simple. Kids, uh, teens, I'm going to recommend a few things. Read Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Great book. You can get you into theology. It's going to be good. Um, Expository of Apologetics by Vodi Bauckham. You could do this. You could read it. It's going to give you some theology, and it's going to give you some basic apologetics. You can handle it. If you are 12 or older, I think you could handle this book. Um, the other one is Answers to Skeptics, uh, their top 40 questions. It is a one-page answer to all of the major questions that skeptics bring up. Great book. Teens, you could read that. Dads, moms, you should read it too. Good stuff. I'll also recommend, uh, and I'm just going to shill for my own organization a little bit, uh, Omnibus Curriculum is a Christian tr curriculum that allows your kid to be exposed to the great literature from a biblical worldview and teaching them theology along the way. Veritas Press, highly recommend it. Get them an ESV student study Bible as well. Um, almost everybody in our church has an ESV study Bible, and they kind of are like, this is amazing. Like, the notes are, they, they clear everything up for me. This is great. There's a student version. It also has cool art on it. I mean, come on. Um, get, your kid, get your kids one of those. AGTV, I'm going to recommend. Good stuff. And then get them into some good, like, you guys, we all enjoy entertainment. And have them enjoying entertainment that incites wonder and desire for the things of God. There's a reason why, you know, we read Lord of the Rings, and it's not exactly teaching doctrine, but there's themes in there that are huge and they inspire wonder. I can watch Lord of the Rings with my kids or read The Hobbit to them and say, what, what might this maybe say about God? What might this maybe say about us? How could this maybe relate to the gospel? I could do the same thing with C.S. Lewis. You all have the notes. I'm going to recommend Cross Politics Studios. I'm going to recommend the Riot and the Dance Wildlife Documentary. There's a lot of good stuff out there that will instill wonder in your kids. Answers in Genesis material. Can I just encourage us? Let's train up the kids. Um, nothing fancy there, you guys. Let me pray. And who's on for the gospel? My wife was, but I'm like You're covering. Way to go. Father God, um, I will ask that you will take my meager words that um, are not polished today and yet hopefully are in accordance with your will. Um, fill us with your spirit that we would obey you in front of our children. And part of that obedience, Lord, is an, a mindset of repentance. God, I, I know I fail in front of my children. They see it. Um, I know the rest of us will too. Lord, may I seek forgiveness from them. May I not be so prideful as to think that I need to protect my status as a father with false heirs. Lord, when I sin, may I repent and may they see it. May I seek their forgiveness when I wrong them. And then, Lord, may our household and may the households of this church be just like what is described positively in Deuteronomy 6, that the word of God would be central, that we would teach it to our kids, that we would obey it, that we would talk about you, that we would remember the great things you have done, we would instill them in our kids, and then may that carry on from generation to generation until you return. 
God, it, it might be a bold prayer, but what I want is for not only my wife and I and our children to follow you, but I want all my grandchildren to follow you. And I want all of their children and their grandchildren to follow you from generation to generation. I don't want any of them in the devil's hands. I want all of them in your hands. And so I pray that for my family. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm third generation or more. It happens. And so I pray that for my family and for these families that your kingdom would come and will would be done and that you would receive glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.